As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of the Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Joining me are my friends and comrades, Deej and Christian. Those, honestly, I don't really get nervous on podcasts. I've been doing this for quite some time, but today my guest is someone who I consider that I am a disciple of. Someone that has been instrumental, fundamental, a catalyst in my own radicalization. And today is about being in conversation and hopefully given diagnosis of our current moment. Welcome to the Malcolm Effect, Dr. Cornell West. How are you? Oh, my dear brother, you know you bless me in a mighty way, man. I want to salute you, my dear brother, moment, dude. You are forced for good. And of course, brother Christian, sister Khadija, sister Deej, you all just doing wonderful work. And uh, you bless me, you honor me for allowing me to be here and reflect together. We're in this together, you know that. Absolutely, and a part of this absolutely, and a part of this journey is doing learning in community. It's the most generative process I find. That's exactly right, though. That's the key right there that unlocks the door to the reality. That's where the love, the freedom, the magnificent struggle, and where the funky is. Because we don't want to deodorize the discourse. We keep it funky. You know what I mean? (laughs) Always, always, absolutely, always funky. Oh, it's funky. (laughs) I guess my first opening question, I mean, we're going to have a few questions back and forth. I said, Dr. West, given your longstanding and lengthy witness of calling to truth and speaking truth to power, given our current climate, what does your witness entail today? Oh, appreciate that question, though, man. You know, I start off with the notion that I am who I am because somebody loved me, somebody cared for me, somebody tended to me. So that I begin with the point of reference, which is not for the most part the white supremacy, the predatory capitalism, the hatred against those castes, other, be they women or be they Muslims or Arabs or Jews or black people, indigenous people. My point of reference is the love train. It's the tradition of struggle for love and justice that shapes and molds who I most fundamentally am. And so even in a moment of spiritual decay as the American empire undergoes its, 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 its deterioration and maybe even disintegration, even as it looks as if oppressed people seem to not be able to bounce back the way in which I'd like with our wall back against the walls, even if it looks as if, you know, the planet could be blown up any minute with gangsters at the top. We have got to bear witness to what is inside of us. It's like a jazz man or a blues woman, right? No matter what the situation is, you got to sing your song that night and the next night and the next night. And as long as you're true to yourself and preserve your integrity, not purity, because ain't nobody pure. We keep it funky. Every funk got some mess in it, right? But at the same time, we got some rich love, integrity, honesty, decency. I'm talking about your parents. I'm talking about my parents. I'm talking about grandparents at their best. All of us in the various traditions, Islamic, Christian, secular, Buddhist, indigenous people, all of these different religions at their deepest level 
put a stress on integrity, honesty, decency as they understand it. And that's the key. We got to be true to ourselves because, brother, the dominant forces in the world right now are greed, mm-hmm. fear, hypocrisy, and getting over by any means. And we say in the mm-hmm. face of that, no, no, we wasn't raised that way. We wasn't reared that way. Malcolm X didn't live for nothing. Mm. Christian, do you want to go? To kind of echo, you know, you know, the, uh, talking about the prevailing conditions that, that, face, that face us right now. Oftentimes I've heard you coin the term neo-fascism yeah. as opposed to fascism. What are the differences between those things? And even when evaluating our moment, and I recently listened to you on the uh, Rihanna Joy Gray's podcast, talking about how it can be easy to fall into a pessimism when analyzing our current situation. Um, how do we also reconcile the fact that there's also, uh, with regards to the left, a lot of uh, positive things to highlight as well? I mean, considering uh, l- a lot of leftist wins in, in Latin America, I mean, Lula da Silva is ahead of Bolsonaro in the, in the polls. As much as, you know, fascism and neo-fascism looms, the left is, is, is a uh, resisting, fighting, and struggling uh, globally as well. So how do we make sense of that as well? Ooh, you're so right, though, brother. I deeply appreciate that question. I mean, one is that anytime you have any structure of domination, you're going to have resilience and resistance for those who are dominated. They go hand in hand. There is no white supremacy without struggle against white supremacy. There is no male supremacy without struggle against male supremacy. There's no Islamophobia without folk defending the dignity and humanity of Islamic brothers and sisters. So that those two always go hand in hand. That what Antonio Gramsci called the balance of forces, the hegemonic and the counter-hegemonic. So what's happening in various parts of Latin America, like as you rightly say, Colombia, uh, with our dear brother and sister. Now we got the black sister, vice president, and brother man, we got to be pulling for him. What, is, what are they doing? They're bearing witness to the decency and dignity of poor working people, indigenous people who have been subjugated, devalued for so long in the history of Colombia. The Colombian folk have always been struggling. Now we got somebody running the state. Now we know the nation state has its problems. Even when you have progressive people who run the state, you still have to have people outside keeping the pressure on them so that they don't end up becoming too well adapted to injustice and, and well adjusted to indifference. Uh, at the same time, though, on the ground, though, Brother Christian, this is very important for me because it's not just a question of politicians or the leaders, it's everyday people. As long as everyday people still getting up in the morning and loving their kids and giving them all that they can, as long as people are singing songs, as long as people are not allowing whatever catastrophes are in their lives to have the last word, that's a form of resilience and resistance, too. That may not result, mm-hmm. you know, in the moment of high visibility. But that's where all of us come from. You know, all of y'all were two or three years old at one point, right? And, and, and y'all didn't really know the difference between fascism and neo-fascism or anything else. You just <laughs> wrote pressure once, and somebody got to love you. <laughs> somebody got to raise you. Somebody got to educate you. Somebody got to give you a sense of self-confidence. Now, the reason why I, I, I call it neo-fascism rather than fascism is that the first wave of fascism was the very end of the age of Europe. You know, it began in 1492, expulsion of Jews. It began with uh, Europeans encountering precious indigenous peoples in the New World. And uh, it ended in 1940 
five with the Thirty Year War, First World War, beginning August 1914, and then of course in 1945 with the uh, triumph over the gangsterism of not just Hitler but of of Japanese fascists and so forth. So you got fascism at the end of the age of Europe as the European empires begin to die and dissolve. Then after 1945, here comes the Americanization of the world with the Soviet Union trying to present a challenge, but the Soviet Union goes under by 1991. And so the American empire is the only one left. Now that the American empire is undergoing its own form of decay and deterioration, it's a neo-fascism, which is to say, it's not the same kind of fascism that was Hitler and Franco and Mussolini uh, uh, and the fascists in, Jap- in Japan, but it's a U.S.-style fascism. It's a U.S.-style fascism has not just white supremacy as its major public face, but militarism in the background, tied to big military, the war marketeers, the people making big, 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 big money on wars against terror, on selling arms all around the world. And then you've got big money, Wall Street, Silicon Valley and company who are also supporting, or too many of them supporting. And the attack is very much on peoples of color, but of course it also has much to do with vicious attacks on working people across the board. Women is deeply patriarchal. We see the attack too often against women in a variety of forms, be it courts or other institutions. And it usually is one taking the country back. And that taking the country back is a nostalgia for the days in which the American empire was in the driver's seat with very little sense of its vincibility, thinking it's invincible. But now we know that's not the case. So I call that a neo-fascism. And Trump, of course, is just a sign of the symptom because you got a whole lot of uh, other folk who'd want to uh, take his uh, play, hit, play the same role he's playing, the DeSantos and others. But it's 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 very much big money, big military, white supremacist attack on democratic principles, pro- procedures, and roughly it's just the gangsterization of a country. I mean, that's what fascism is. So to clarify, you would say there's a historical specificity in the, in the differences between precisely, the two. very very much so. Because the thing about history is that history. It's so variable, it's, it's so contingent, it's so transient, and it's partly because of the balance of forces. See, it depends on what right. people do, you see. As the neoliberal regime, uh, that it goes from Clinton and Obama all the way up to Biden, as it loses its legitimacy, as people begin to see it cannot deliver, as its hypocrisy and its arrogance becomes more visible, people are looking for another way. They could go with Bernie, social democratic possibility, you know, not revolutionary, but significantly reformist. Or you can go outright neo-fascist with Trump. But the neoliberal re- project more and more has lost its legitimacy. It's running out of gas. And people can see that very, very clearly. And so that's what makes this moment such a... Um, a difficult one. And of course, the backdrop, as we mentioned before, is the possibility of uh, the planet itself undergoing massive destruction owing to corporate greed tied to ecological crisis. Did you want to go ahead? Yeah, no, absolutely. So my question is more about thinking about where we are today in regards to race. Yes. I'm someone who is really interested in 
not only the history of race, but how we conceive of race and meaning and how race as in, in its meaning transforms through various epochs. I've been really concerned about the current moment as it relates to race. In the context of, of Britain, we're finding an ever-growing, what I feel is a, is a a kind of return to racially essentialist notions of race, where people are arguing the specificity and oftentimes the primacy of things like blackness as a sort of global project. And as such, making the case that coalition building and movement building with non-black folks is an impossibility. In the context of the UK, we had a politically black movement, which was a coalition of working class folk who understood that blackness represented a form of proletarianization. And so they organized under that banner, you know, towards the state. Now in the kind of public discussions, we're seeing, you know, oftentimes black folk disregard and detach themselves from those political notions of blackness, those revolutionary notions of blackness, and make the case for a blackness that is so specific, so ingrained that they're oftentimes repurposing what I would argue is, you know, very problematic notions of blackness. How do you, or what do you think we do about that current problem? And how do you think we can overcome this perspective that assumes that movements for racial justice, movements for the emancipation of people who are marginalized through the logics of race can only happen in our individualistic racial bubbles and not as a as a larger movement, not as a larger coalition. Mm, ooh, I tell you, you all got some high quality questions. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, I appreciate that. I mean, see, for me, I look at the world as a blues man or a jazz man. And the blues and the jazz are fundamentally about courage, integrity, honesty, creativity, a willingness to give, a willingness to dig deep inside of one's own soul and to empty oneself in order to help empower others. So that makes it profoundly humanistic, profoundly humanistic. Now, because white supremacy cuts so deep, that we have to have a discourse on blackness that's real and rich and funky because blackness has been so thoroughly devalued and demeaned. But any for, for me, any discourse on blackness has to acknowledge the roles of integrity, honesty, decency, courage, vision, service of others within the black context and across black, white, black, brown, black, Asian, and so forth and so on. And so... I've always, you know, had comradely relations with many of my black nationalist brothers and sisters, some of even the black separatist brothers and sisters. If, if, if some say that I find it difficult to have an alliance with vanilla brothers and sisters and white brothers and sisters, Brother West, you can go on and try to have your alliance if you want, but not me. I'm spending all of my time with black folk. I say, hey, well, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I'm still in your corner. I disagree. I think sooner or later you're going to have to have some solidarity and alliance. But even one life to live, and given how deep white supremacy is, if you're in a black nationalist or in black separatist context, going to keep loving black folk, going to keep raising the babies, but keep the love, keep the integrity, keep the honesty, and just admit, for you, you have levels of suspicion and distrust that's so deep that it doesn't allow you to have alliance with white folk. Now, I, that's not my option. That's not my alternative. I'm going to work with you because I love the same black folk you do. I'm singing, I'm singing a song that I want to affect their souls and empower their souls. But I do believe that if we're going to have the kind of fundamental transformation that we're talking about, then we're going to have to bring in 
class. We're going to have to bring in empire. And as soon as you bring in class, then the black bourgeoisie can become just as manipulative, just as myopic, just as short-sighted, just as greedy, just as indifferent as any other bourgeoisie in the world. Like you go to Africa and African bourgeoisies, are they delivering for the African poor? I don't think so. Are Latin American bourgeoisies delivering for that Latin American poor? I don't think so. Is the American bourgeoisie? Hell no. Britain, A-P-L-L-L-L-L, no, with all the queen talk and the monarchy talk and all this celebration of our dear sister. And I think we ought to celebrate the queen. She's a human being and she's got loved ones, but she's been the head of not just a monarchy, but an empire that has crushed thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of precious Africans and other peoples, including the Irish, who are vanilla. And that needs to be talked about too. Why? Because like a blues man, a jazz woman, we want the truth. We keep it funky. We want integrity. We want honesty. We want compassion that spills over. For a lot of people like the early Malcolm X, compassion stopped right at the line Black folk only. That's following the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He went on to go beyond that. He said, now, oh, I discovered there's some Muslim brothers and sisters who are not black like me, but are just as precious and willing to, to, to fight and sacrifice. Like then he was reminded of John Brown in America. So, well, if you're white and like John Brown, then maybe you could join my organization because it's clear you got to commend with the black folk in some ways deeper than many black people have to other black folk. And once he made, made that recognition, he said, oh, Oh, it really is a deeply human thing in the end. Yes, indeed, indeed. And I would argue that it's really there in the very rich tradition of, of Islam. It's there in the rich tradition of Judaism and the biblical text and the Quran. It's there in the, in the New Testament of my own revolutionary Christian tradition. But it's also there among secular folk in terms of deep humanistic uh, perceptions and humanistic concerns. And so... For me, it's not either or, though, my sister. You see what I mean? It's, it really isn't. I mean, it's, I make a choice, no doubt. I'm for multiracial solidarity. I'm for profoundly humanistic orientations across the board, no matter what color. But at the same time, for folk who, who are suspicious of that, I do understand. But I don't want them to become paralyzed, too. Just love where you are. I'm in the black context. I'm going to keep loving these black folk. I'm going to keep fighting against white supremacy. I'm going to make sure blackness is not demeaned and degraded. I say, hey, I'll sing that song with you. I'll join that choir. I'll join that choir. I just have other ties to choirs that are singing broader songs that are embracing <laughs> oppressed folk all around the world, no matter what color, no matter what nation. Absolutely. And thank you so much for that. I think that's a very necessary and pragmatic way of thinking about that separation between folks who want to organize collectively and build coalitions across races and those who are suspicious and you know those suspicions are rightfully had history teaches us lots of lessons so i don't ever discount those folk as necessarily reactionary but i did want to ask what happens or how do you feel about the particular school of thought which is galvanizing that particular specificity but promoting it as an antagonism that necessarily seems to offer to black folk inherent pessimism and i'd argue an ontological pessimism well that ontological pessimism is a little different for me because look at the afro-pessimist school especially in the united states especially in uh, uc irvine brother fred and the and, and, and others 
Brother Janet, that there the claim that black folk will always be on the bottom, blackness associated with abjection and subjection, and there's no other way out unless the whole world no longer exists. The white supremacist world uh, must be fundamentally transformed, but that to think that somehow there's no way out, so that even forms of hope themselves become, uh, are rejected. You see, I think that goes a little bit too far, it seems to me. I can understand that kind of suspicion you're talking about, the kind of skepticism, but the history is different than ontology. See, once you ontologize, then you're saying that all historical alternatives lead toward the same conclusion. Whereas when you historicize, history is still open-ended. History still has some alternatives. And I tend to historicize rather than ontologize any kind of uh, uh, pessimism. And there's a difference between earned pessimism and cheap pessimism. You mm. see, I don't mind Afro-pessimists who go to jail with me and are willing to live and die for truth and justice, beginning with black folk. And I've been to jail with some Afro-pessimists. I love them because their pessimism doesn't paralyze them. They still fight. Mm. But the Afro-pessimists yeah. who tell us it's objective, it's ontological, and then go off and sip tea in some petty bourgeois space and then drink a little mm. cognac after their tea, and you, never see, <laughs> and you never see them fighting in the street, never see them sacrificing, never see them cutting against the grain. See, that's cheap pessimism. I can't respect that. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for that. And I think you're echoing the sentiments myself, Mamadou and Christian have had, even to some very... <laughs> some very antagonistic responses. I've always argued that <laughs> pessimism that leads and transforms and Im invites a revolutionary spirit because people do not want to be crushed down by the forces against them is a pessimism I can that's, get behind, behind right. of. But when we present the violences of anti-blackness, the violences of racial capitalism as insurmountable, in some instances, we actually give up our that's power. Right. We make capitalism win. Capitalism wants to view wants us to view it as insurmountable because then that that makes people think of it as natural. And when people think of it as natural, they don't seek to fight yeah. it. And I think that has devastating consequences for black folk that I would never allow myself to, to to kind of associate with. And I give you a good example of that in terms of Afro pessimism in regard to text. And you remember Brother Fred Willerman's text when at the very end when his mother tells him that he loves her and he goes home and writes this poem, the last pages of that text. It's a beautiful poem. It's a powerful poem. He's responding to the love of his mother and letting her know how deep it is for him not just to be loved, but for him to love her back. Now, if that poem were the center of his text, then blackness wouldn't be associated with abjection because that kind of love, that kind of joy, mm -hmm. that kind of freedom experience in love and love experience in freedom means that white supremacy and racial capitalism is surmountable even in that symbolic sense, in the artistic sense of the poem. And all you got to do is listen to soul to soul when they say, keep on moving. And that song, <laughs> blackness is not objection. No, 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 no. And that's London. We ain't even got to date in Ohio Funkville yet. You know what I mean? With the Ohio players and, and James Brown down in, in Georgia. You see, so the dirt, these artistic moments remind us that blackness is never synonymous with solely objection. No, we just don't have the collective mechanisms. We don't have the collective means to overcome the racial capitalism in the full sense. But in the psychic, spiritual, cultural sense, all you got to do is just look at black people walking down the street with all of the style and the charm and the self-confidence and say, hey, 
That's not objection right there. People don't walk like that when they experience full scale. When they get full scale <laughs> objection, they don't walk streets like that. Mm-mm. Nope. They don't walk like that when they're ontological slaves. They That's absolutely exactly don't. Right. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> a little Tupac. Um, Tupac, he's not, he's not expressing no abject ontological subjugation. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I guess this leads me on to the next thoughts. As someone who's recently joined uh, the academy, and Deej is also in the academy, and Christian I, as, is adjacent to the academy, yeah. <laughs> and he also will join the academy. They are what I find valid critiques of the black yes. intellectual and the kind of co-optation, all too, all too quick co-optation of the black intellectual in the perpetuation of imperialism and in the perpetuation of empire. So I guess my question here, I guess just advice to myself, Deej, Christian, and other young people who are who have a concern and love for black people, but believe that via knowledge production and by via the academy and these institutions that, you know, perhaps we can produce something that will be beneficial and enacted for change. What would be that advice? Well, one is that, I mean, I thank God you all are wherever you are and doing what you do, wherever you do it. <laughs> First thing I want to say that up front. Now, to be part of the professional managerial class in the production of knowledge, which is what universities for the most part are, means then you do have a context that has its own protocols that reinforce certain kind of conformity, certain kind of complicity. But as long as you have intellectual integrity and, you, and, and you're involved in your quest for truth and beauty and goodness and the holy, then you always have a critique of that. You got a critique of that outside of the academy. You have a critique of that inside of the academy. Now, on the other hand, you know, in a predatory capitalist civilization, you're going to have to have some access to cash flow, just be able to live and, and, and help support your loved ones, you know. So you got to have some kind of job unless, you know, you hit the lotto or something. Uh, so that the question becomes whatever kind of job I have, whatever the context is, my vocation, my calling is to try to exemplify intellectual integrity, honesty, decency, that quest for truth, goodness, beauty, and the holy, which means, yes, I'm going to be critical of the academy because the dominant orientation of the academy tends to be a certain kind of uh, uh, conformity to the status quo, or if it's symbolic critiques of the status quo, it's not followed through with a substantive witness against the status quo. And you can do that as a professor. Du Bois was a professor for many, many decades. He kept telling the truth. When C.L.R. James came to states and taught for a while, when James Baldwin taught at University of Massachusetts, they were part of the academy. Did they keep telling the truth? Absolutely, yes, very much so. Angela Davis has been part of the academy for over 60 years. She's been true to herself. I mean, she's not always right, because I mean, she and I, we'd have deep love for each other, but she was tied to the Soviet Union for a long time. And so I had a strong critique of the Soviet Union. She and I had very similar critiques of American capitalism. But she was tied to the Soviet Union and the Communist Party, so I thought sometimes she wasn't as consistent as she ought in terms of the critique of the Soviet Union. But she was still telling truths about American capitalism that, as we know, you know, got her in deep trouble. But she bounced back, right back in the academy, and still in, engaged in her truth-telling in terms of... Uh, uh, a prison, uh, as, as a prison abolitionist and so on. So a lot of times it's you all supporting each other as friends, partners, 
comrades, affiliations, communities to constitute countervailing forces against the dominant tendencies of the academy, of the professional managerial class that tends to generate cultures of arrogance, condescension, haughtiness, looking down on working and poor people, looking down down on who the great Sly Stone call everyday people. Thank you so much for that. I guess my follow-up to that would be, in my short time in the academy so far, I've noticed that there seems to be hyper-focus on blackness as it pertains to culture. And whilst I think that's extremely important, I'm thinking of Walter Rodney here and when he says that we have to use labor as a conceptual framework for black studies. And what I've seen so far, there seems to be almost an aversion to materiality. So whilst we focus on the culture and things other than the material, there seems to be an aversion in addressing the material. So how in what do you see or how important to you as a material analysis? Now? Oh, I think it's always important. That's why the Stuart Halls and that's why um, the Walter Rodneys and the Manny Marables and the Bell Hooks, Barry Hooks also, even though people can associate her with culture and spirituality and, and all about love and so forth. And you all know she and I worked together and wrote books together and taught together, that she was always concerned about what Marxists would call the base. She was always concerned about the economic foundation, the modes of production, the issues of class and labor, but also empire. Also empire. So when you talk about predatory capitalist civilizations that are class driven, shot through with white supremacy, male supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, shot through with various hatreds of certain kinds of religions, the United States is very much Islamophobic in that sense. That the uh, you have to be able to keep track like a good jazz woman, improvisational, flexible, fluid with all of these various dimensions of the lived experience of our precious everyday people. Everyday person walking down the block is affected by empire, class, gender, race. And we got to be true to what they're up against. And we got to be true to how they wrestle with it in their own way. And we got to be critically involved and engaged as to how they do it. Because we won't always agree with them. But we have to be honest about what the context actually is. Now, So that in the academy, it's so easy to talk about culture, not say a mumbling word about class. Partly the reason is because one doesn't want to come to terms with one's own class position. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this conversation is so rich. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, Dr. West, I wanted to actually ask a question, you know, regarding, I think, like one of my favorite quotes that, that you've written, and it's from your book, Prophecy Deliverance. And I actually remember, you know, when I was an undergrad, I would sit in the Union Theological Seminary uh, stacks, wow. especially with the, the first edition copy where you signed the, the inside cover. And I'm pretty sure during my four years in undergrad, I probably had that book uh, checked out 70% of the time. Wow. I just kept hitting renew. That's amazing, <laughs> though, brother. That's beautiful, man. I hope, I hope you, but, um, you just <laughs> keep that book at your crib, man, to make that your book. Or <laughs> 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 another or um, another <laughs> no, I've, I've done that with uh, too many books uh, I know what the quote is is actually referring to I think uh, kind of dialectics and something you mentioned earlier right you said 
Uh, where there is domination, there will be a resistance to it, you know, which, which is kind of an example of that. But the particular quote I'm, I'm speaking of is, the dignity of persons is their ability to con- contradict what is, to change and be changed, and to act in the light of, what is, uh, of that which is not yet. The depravity of persons is their proclivity to cling to the moment, to refuse to transform, and to be transformed. And I think, you know, this this is, you know, a, a reflection on, on the Christian gospel. And I know you come from the tradition of, you know, Martin Luther King, who who is also a dialectician, and even his essays on Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, suggests a, a dialectic between history and, and, uh, and, and eternity. So could, could you speak more to what dialectics is as a method, the importance of contradiction, and, and, at the, and more importantly, what does it mean to... Uh, what Sly Stone would call it. Uh, uh, yes, wow, thank you so much for that, though, Mel. And you're sending me back. I mean, it just so happens that um, there's a 40th anniversary edition of that book coming out next month, which is mm. really mind-blowing, 1982. My dear brother Jonathan mm-hmm, Walton, mm-hmm. who's a dean of Divinity School at Wake Forest University, put it out. But they got five essays of young scholars responding to the book. 40 years later and, and seeing, you know, what, what, what's worthwhile and what's, in, what's living and what's dead in it and so forth. So it's really quite a tribute that 40 years later, uh, uh, you would also in, invoke that, that text. That text happens to still be my favorite text after mm-hmm. many, you know, 20-some books later because it zeroes in on what my fundamental calling is. And you hit the nail on the head that, no matter how improvisational you are, no matter how protein flexible and fluid you attempt to be, you have to come down somewhere in terms of your bedrock convictions, your bedrock devotions, your bedrock affections. And it begins, of course, with family and mom. Ain't nobody gonna mess with mom, right? I mean, that's just how it is. The same was true, yeah. you know, with, with, with my daughter, my son, or wife, and so forth. Uh, and intellectually, it's the same way. So there's a number of traditions we pull from. See, I don't exist without Malcolm X. He's a revolutionary Muslim. He, I don't exist without John Coltrane. We don't know what Coltrane is, but his spirituality is so profound that it affects me every day. And he, of course, his first wife was a Muslim, Naima, who's, who was very influential in the shaping of who he was. Now, Alice, his second wife, was, uh, uh, was Hindu. So that for me, the revolutionary Christian tradition is where I come down, and that's my connection to, to, to Martin King and Fannie Lou Hamer and a host of others. Ida B. Wells Barnett, great towering intellectual who taught Sunday school every Sunday in Chicago, you see. Uh, so that, that's where I come down, even though I'm very much open to embrace and learn and be in solidarity with the best of other religious and secular traditions. And that sense of what you were calling dialectics, but really it's, it's, it's more dramatic than it is dialectic. Because the problem with dialectics coming out of Hegel especially, it's still a form of renouf, of reason, of rationality being enacted, whereas drama cuts mm-hmm. deeper than rationality. It cuts deeper than dialect. Dialectics and drama have to do with conflict. There's no doubt. Conflict. But drama is about conflict emotionally felt as well as critically reflected upon. Whereas for Hegel, dialectic is about 
a rational discernment of the direction of history. And you see, it, that's a kind of drama, but it's not emotional, it's not existential, it's not visceral, it's not bodily, it's not going, it's, it's not funky in that way. See, in the end, Hegel wants a deodorized dialectic where all of the, what Samuel Beckett would call the mess has been cleaned up, whereas drama and the drama of life, you know, the funk goes all the way down. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's never cleaned up. Uh, you, the, the, the aim and the end is to keep fighting, keep moving, keep swinging, keep discerning, looking, seeing, feeling, acting courageously, and most importantly, keep loving. That, to me, is a much deeper conception. And that's really, I think, one of the big differences between uh, the kind of Christianity dipped in the black experience that I come out of, a blues-like gospel, than somebody like a Hegel or even a Marx that's still looking for rationality. And in the end, you find this, this clarity and lucidity and uh, doing away with the mess and doing away with the funk. And you say, no, I'm sorry, Hegel. Sorry, Karl Marx. It's going to be funky all the way down. The question is, what kind of strength do you have? to deal with the conflict, whatever form of conflict it is, class conflict, gender conflict, racial conflict, psychic conflict, spiritual conflict, cultural conflict, regional conflict, and so on. So you all see what I'm trying to just kind of tip toward. You can imagine we could have a seminar on this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Deej? Yeah, so my question is specifically thinking through, again, where we are in this current moment in comparison to history. So I think that in history, there was a time where there was a real clear, really visible global movement against imperialism, through third worldism, through the movements of Pan-Africanism. Even the work that the Panthers did was essentially tied to an internationalist movement, a movement beyond the borders of the nation and to a conception of liberation outside of that context. And at that time, too, it seemed as though what you would call the imperial imperative seemed incredibly clear. It seemed robustly and rigorously critiqued and something that most people could understand. But I find that in this current moment, imperialism is becoming less and less clearly understood. So my question is, do you believe that this current moment represents a new imperial imperative? Or do you think that imperialism, just like capitalism, has just found new ways to hide itself, new ways to cannibalize other systems and to kind of go without notice? And what can we do as young people today who are so interested in movements for emancipation to reverberate and to reclaim that kind of global kind of, you know, movement for emancipation that was inspired through the third world and pan-African mm-hmm. movements? Ooh, I'm telling you, this is so rich that I was blessed to um, to write a new introduction to Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth last year. It was the 60th anniversary. Wow. Oh, my and, God. Uh, <laughs> it, it's yeah. very important because uh, that earlier moment that you were alluding to, my dear sister, uh, where it, it was clear that as Europe and the Europeanization of the world began to disintegrate and as the European empires began to be called into question with decolonization movements all around the world, but especially in Africa, that there was a kind of Manichaean perspective. Uh, You had the imperialists on one hand, the anti-imperialists on the other, but Fanon reminded us, and we used to read that powerful chapter that you all know about, The Pitfalls of National Consciousness, that he knew that it would be the nation-state 
from the vantage point of the colonized that would play an important role in pushing the imperialists out. But he made a distinction between nationalism and national consciousness, you remember, because for him, national consciousness was always an internationalism because nationalism would become one of the weapons of the new elites who control the nation state after the imperialists were pushed out politically. But economically, they still were playing an important role in the world order. And so those new national bourgeoisies, after the colonial movement was successful, those new bourgeoisies in those nation states, it could be in Nigeria, it could be in Asia, it could be in Latin America, whatever, that for no one understood that was now going to be a major impediment for everyday people, for poor and working people. Now, now move forward 60 years. Ooh, wow. You know, we've got now 60 years of neo-colonialism in, in, in Africa, neo-colonialism in various parts of the world, in Latin America, in Asia. What do I mean by neo-colonial? I mean that the national bourgeoisies that have been reigning for 60 years in alliance with international capital, in alliance with various predatory capitalist elite from especially Europe and the United States, still cooperating and coagulating in such a way that those national bourgeoisies experience a certain kind of major breakthrough, but the poor and working classes there do not, even after Mandela, as we know, as much as we love Mandela. In the end, he governed as a neoliberal that was unable to deliver to the masses of folks still locked into the townships. As a revolutionary, he had a critique of the very way in which he governed. He went to jail for 20-some years. That's why we love him forever. He's willing to sacrifice his life. But when he had a chance to rule, it was very difficult. Of course, he had structural constraints in terms of the, the, the alternatives, alternatives were, were limited. But when I had a chance to talk with him, I mean, I gave one of the Nelson Mandela lectures in 2006 and they had portions of it on national TV, and he was right there. And I said, look, you, have, you all have promoted the Santa Clausification of Nelson Mandela so that the revolutionary figure has become an old man with toys in his bag to give out with a smile to preserve stability while poor and working people still getting crushed. So when I met him, I said, well, I know that's kind of hard, especially on TV, Brother Nelson, but what do you think, man? He said, Brother West." He said, what you say, I know, and it affects me deeply. He says, but international capital is so powerful that they would crush us. So I had very limited alternatives. I said, I can understand that, my brother. I said, but that's why, as someone still trying to tell the truth of the suffering of poor and working people, that's why I say it even with you as president. And, of course, same is true with Obama. Same is true with any, any president that's governing, governing in a neoliberal way, forced to marketize and hollow out public life and make poor and working people an afterthought rather than a major priority. Wow, thank you so much for that. That was, yeah, incredibly important. And as Marmaduke and Christian know, I'm such a huge fan of Fanon uh, um, and his work inspires me and inspires my, my academic work for this so day. And a lot of what you say very much rings true as I'm a migrant from Ghana and I see how you know, Nkrumah has similarly been sort of santified and bastardized. 
and his revolutionary spirit has very much been crushed. So I guess for me, then the question then becomes, how do we overcome that? How do we make sure we do not make those same mistakes? How do we carry on that revolutionary spirit that we have now and ensure that we don't get sucked in as academia can do into the kind of logics of the black bourgeois managerial class? How do we remain true to our to our revolutionary spirit? I think what we primarily have is accountability, answerability, and responsibility that has to come not just from within us, but with others who we associate. That's why it's so important in our counter-hegemonic context that we try to keep each other accountable and answerable. So the point of reference is always those who are putting poor and working people at the center. As soon as the point of reference shifts to success in the system, then you have a different way of being in the world. Because one of the best ways of being highly successful in the system is to make poor and working people a second uh, afterthought and to go on about your individual career and be concerned only about making it as opposed to keeping faith to the struggle for freedom for everybody, beginning with the least of these. So that the kinds of communities that we create become very, very important. Definitely. So I wanted to talk earlier about, because you had mentioned, you know, with regards to black nationalism, you know, you have your disagreements, but you find importance and uh, and value in struggling with these people. And when it comes to various groups, you know, there is never, you know, a complete agreement, uh, even though uh, collaboration with may be uh, fruitful. However, you know, I know you also say that, that you place an emphasis on truth. For you, truth is allowing suffering to speak um, however, contributing to movements, parties, uh, revolutionary struggle is often more than speaking truth to power. So I guess my question is like, how, what is the, the barometer for dignity and where is, how do, do you tell that line while also practicing a pragmatism? Mm, yes, yes. I mean, a lot of it has to do with uh, what the issues are are that you're focusing on and what the context is. So I live right now on 110th Street in Harlem, right? I'm overlooking precious Harlem right now. And you got housing struggles. Now in the housing struggles, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of black nationalists. And you know, we come together because we're trying to make sure that everyday people have access to decent, decent housing. Now, if we if if the issue shifts to issues of patriarchy and remember Many of the black nationalists, you know, are looking at women as if they are ought to be deferential to them and don't are not fundamentally committed to the egalitarian perception of women. Then I, I just bring my critique of patriarchy, and we have our you know discussions. Same is true with homophobia or whatever it is. So it depends on what the issues are. There's a whole wave of issues where. We can come together with black nationalists and legatees, not just Martin Luther King Jr., but the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party was always internationalist, even given its blackness as real as a heart attack. And so you're right, the parameter, I like the use of your word, parameter of, of integrity becomes important because you got to be true to yourself. you got to be true to yourself. That means sometimes, you know, in certain coalitions, well, if deference to patriarchy requires membership in the coalition, then I can't be a part of that coalition. 
but nobody raises that issue when we're fighting for housing, when we're fighting for health care, and so forth and so on. But when it reaches that mm-hmm. point, or let's say even in terms of, uh, of you know, what would be a good example of people say, well, you know, you can't be really part of this movement. That's dynamite. Yeah, yeah but but so that it, it, it depends on which issue that we're focusing on. Uh, if people are very dogmatic and say, well, Brother West, you cannot be part of this coalition because we notice you have been so critical of U.S. imperial policy abroad in the Middle East or in Africa, or you've been so very critical of the black bourgeoisie and black politicians who too often sell out the big business, then I say, well, I just can't be part of the coalition. Y'all pray for me and uh, let me try to be the force for good that I am. And you all can still be a force for good in a very limited sense, mm-hmm. working on housing or health care and what have you. But you're not going to say a mumbling word about U.S. foreign policy that's, that's, that's ugly and immoral and illegal. Then, then I'm not able to be part of that coalition. That's part of the honesty, I think, and integrity. That's required. We could speak for literally, I won't even say hours, but days. <laughs> I'm, going to cl- I'm going to close out this episode. Dr. West, I, <sighs> words escape me in, in how I feel about this conversation right now. And this is as someone, uh, my friends can testify, I, I don't usually, I'm, not, I'm never usually short for words. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't testify. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much please stick around and we'll have our afters but um, i'm going to close out the recording now thank you so much this has been whew, the malcolm effect of mom of the tough i forgot my outro for a second <laughs> please like comment subscribe and see you soon guys